Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello my time travelling friends, it's Sarah the Tudor Travel Guide here and welcome back to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. And I'm delighted to say that I managed to get out on location this month. And it's an unusual location because I was had the privilege of being invited down to London to the Philip Mole Gallery. Many of you uh, will know of Philip Mole for his time on either the Antiques Roadshow or on Fake or Fortune. Well, Philip has a gallery down on Pall Mall and I was invited along there by the Director of Research for the Philip Mole Galleries, Lawrence Hendra, to talk about an up-and-coming exhibition at the gallery, Love's Labours Found. Well, I had a wonderful time meeting with Lawrence and enjoying musing over some of the fabulous pieces of Tudor and Stuart art that they have on display there. And I found out from Lawrence just what kind of developments have been happening in the art world that now allow us to understand so much more and appreciate so much more about these fabulous pieces of art. And so let's just go straight over and you will join me and Lawrence in conversation in the gallery in London. Hello Lawrence and welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Thank you very much, thank you for having me. Well it's lovely to see you in person because we have spoken before about your discovery of the Mary Queen of Scots uh, Mm. portrait but I haven't met you in person so what a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for inviting us down here because I'm down here at the Philip Mull Gallery on Pall Mall in London and this is where you work professionally. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I'm a director and head of research here at um, Philip Mould and Company and I've been with Philip for almost 10 years now. Lovely. Okay. Now, we, as I said, we were talking about Mary Queen of Scots before, but we're talking about something completely <laughs> different. So <laughs> do you want to introduce us to the topic of our conversation for this podcast? Yeah, so really the the topic is our forthcoming exhibition, um, Love's Labours Found, which is an exhibition of Tudor and Jacobean portraiture, which is being staged at our gallery between 21st of April and the 28th of May this year. Okay, so what's that all about? Because there's quite a story behind this, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So essentially this is one of a, a series of scholarly exhibitions which our gallery has staged over the last few decades. And this is probably our sort of third or fourth uh, major exhibition focusing on Tudor and Jacobean portraiture. Really, the focus of this exhibition is about discovery, really. And I suppose it's quite a pertinent time to do this because this has um, recently come as a result of 
um, a whole series of um, projects um, and other exhibitions that have been staged to sort of really focus the eye on this period and also to encourage people to think about it and engage with it in a way that hasn't previously been possible and this is due really to various technological advances. Okay so maybe you could take us back to mm. where this story started because we were having a bit of a chat before this mm. and I think the kind of the beginning of this story links into somebody called Roy Strong, Sir mm. Roy Strong that's right. Can you mm. tell us a little bit about him and how this whole project has evolved over time? So I think one of the earliest champions in this field in terms of modern scholarship was Sir Roy Strong mm. and it was in the late 60s and early 70s that Sir Roy uh, revisited this area of study mm -hmm. and produced a number of very important publications um, as well as um, staging several exhibitions both at the National Portrait Gallery and later at the V&A which really put Tudor and Jacobean portraiture back on the map and that was probably the first time that in modern day, in a modern age anyway, that the general public were able to engage with this type of art that so, they hadn't done before. So why haven't they done that before? Why do you think that there hadn't been that same level of interest or the ability to engage with portraits in, in the way that Sir Roy managed to, to do? Well, I always think that it was perhaps due to the fact that they, people felt slightly intimidated by them. I mean, I think when you're faced with a full-length portrait of an Elizabethan subject and all their sort of fine garb and their rough and their costume. I think people felt a sort of sense of detachment, but what these exhibitions did is, by staging it at the National Portrait Gallery, a public institution, and inviting the general public in, it sort of broke down that barrier, really, and it got people up close and personal with them, and I said in a way that wasn't previously possible. I mean, of course, before this, the, the National Portrait Gallery wasn't necessarily the obvious place you'd go to for, for a day out. Yeah, um, right. it, it wasn't. Yeah. It didn't have that accessibility, um, but from that date it did, and that's really what, what encouraged people, I think, to, to go in there and, and to see these things. Well, thanks for explaining that, because as you say, today I think people do think of the National Portrait Gallery as a great place Absolutely. to go, and yeah. it's free, apart from, you know, yeah, that's, which yeah, is course. another good reason yeah. to visit, apart from the fact that their Tudor wing is stuffed full of amazing portraits. Yeah. But, so that's quite a really interesting perspective, that that mm. really hasn't always been the case at no. all. No. Okay, so what, so what happened with the story from there? Because obviously technology has adva mm. advanced and I guess you art historians have continued to learn about paintings from that era. So mm. maybe you could talk us through, because that's what we're talking, four decades, mm. four or five decades ago. So what's been happening over those decades? Well, I mean, so Sir so Roy has a formidable memory and a brilliant eye, but the one thing that he didn't have at his disposal at his disposal at that date was good photography for starters, um, uh, increased access to technological advances. I mean, yes, X-ray was around then, but it wasn't it it, it wasn't applied to portraiture in a way that that it certainly is now. I mean, these it was still very very early on. Um, right. in that date. So, but what's happened since then, of course, is that we've had, uh, I mean, photography has just progressed leaps and bounds. So you can now produce incredibly high resolution images, um, colour images as well, which have enabled scholars to sit down and to further Roy Strong's research. And also, um, you can subject paintings now to so these various scientific and technological advances that, you, that Roy couldn't have done back in 1970. 
And I think the next kind of milestone in terms of um, scholarly um, approaches came with the Dynasties exhibition, which was staged at the Tate in 1995. And that exhibition, which was curated by Karen Hearn, also included in the catalogue, which is a sort of a must-have for any Tudor scholar, or anyone who has an interest in portrait from this period, you must buy this, this, the Dynasties book. And in the back of the catalogue, you'll also see that it, they subjected um, some of the paintings, certainly not all of them, but some of them, to scientific analysis. So they studied the way that um, the panels, well, the, the way the pictures were painted, you know, for the, the age of the panel, um, the, how the ground layers were applied to the panel, how the underdrawing was then applied, and the paint layers on top of that. So that was, in sort of modern day times, that, that exhibition again broke down another set of barriers. And from then, uh, again, through technical advances, through the, through the incredibly high quality of photography that you, you can get nowadays, um, that's what has now caused this sort of explosion since then. So, so where are we now in terms of being able to engage with or read or learn about what Tudor portraiture is actually telling us? Before I answer that question, actually, there, there is a very, very, uh, another very important part of this, this sort of um, this line of progress, and that is the Making Art in Tudor Britain project at the National Portrait Gallery. And that started in 2007 and ran for about seven years. And what they did was that they took a series of works from their collection and scrutinised them you know, in, in, with exceptional detail. They looked at the history behind them, they, they looked into the provenance, but also the, the way they were painted, and they placed them within the context of other paintings from that period. And they just sub subjected them to was a very, very close study. And it was as a result of that as well that a new generation of scholars and academics came into the field. And from there, a lot of those um, new scholars have then gone on to focus on areas such as attribution, which hasn't always been a popular subject. Um, why why hasn't it been popular? Um, and attribution means, by the way, let's, let's just be really clear what we're mm. talking about. What do you mean by attribution and why hasn't it been popular? Essentially trying to figure out who painted what. And that's probably the best way to describe it. But attribution yeah, hasn't always been a popular thing. I think there's been a lot of focus on... Um, on context and sort of social history and where, when these things were painted, why they were painted, but actually trying to figure out precisely who was responsible for painting individual portraits has in the past taken um, a, a bit of a back seat, whereas you now have a, a group and, you know, a large group of people who, who are now fascinated with precisely that subject and are, are so trying to build to take off from where Roy Strong left off and trying to figure out who painted what and to build bodies of work for each individual artist. I see. So what I'm understanding so far is over the last sort of 40 or 50 years there's been an explosion of understanding through the changes in technology that's available and um, through this scholarly research that's gone on such that mm. we are now in a completely different space than we were back in the 70s, 60s and 70s mm. in terms of appreciating Tudor and Stuart art. Mm. Is, that, is, that, is that a good summary of yes, a, no, a basic top-line yeah. summary of where we're at? Yeah. And I, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the detail, particularly of the, uh, of the tech, of how, what that actually shows us, because 
I suspect there's many people like myself who watch various programs like Fake and Fortune and they're really fascinated by seeing some of this tech. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I don't know, could we go for a walk around the gallery and look at some of the paintings? Can you illustrate some of the, mm. the things that we're able to see in the portraits and maybe how the technology or the, the backstory, the research has brought that to light? Would that of be course. possible? Yes, no, no, no I'd, no, I'd love to show you around, absolutely. I think it's worth pointing out that in terms of technological advances, you, they can sort of be divided into two separate categories. You have the, these techniques that allow you to look at the portraits themselves in these very sort of um, precise and intimate ways. You have sort of x-ray, of course, you've also got infrared photography, you've also um, you've got pigment analysis, but of course you then also have um, these various um, advances that have enabled us to look at documents and archival materials in ways that we weren't before because of course by it's through the study of these documents that you can sometimes um, it sometimes allows you to figure out who painted portraits who commissioned portraits how much these portraits cost which again is all very important when trying to build a, a fulsome understanding of um, this period but so digitization which is happening now at a scale which has never previously been known means that you can now access wills, you can access inventories from collections the other side of the world at just the click of a button. Mm. You know, also it's helped in attributions because, you know, for example, there's a painting in our in our show by an article William Larkin. And when we bought this picture we had a you know, we, we, we were absolutely convinced this was by William Larkin. But of course we needed something to compare it to. And the NPG, of course, isn't open at the moment. Mm. Um, so we went on to the website of the Yale Centre for British Art, and they include high-resolution images of all of their paintings in their collection on their site. And there was one very similar in their collection. We were able to download in literally a few seconds a very, very, very high-resolution photo. We were able to have that on our screen, mm. have the painter next to it, and compare them side by side. I mean, <laughs> it's just... Royston couldn't have imagined that when he sat down to write his catalogue 50 years ago. And that is a very good example on a very basic level, just high resolution photography and how that has helped um, reshape this, this area of study. What's some of your favourite, if you like, discoveries that have come out of this whole body of research over the, you know, over the last several decades? Well, I, I personally am always fascinated by attribution. I mean, I'm one of these, these art historians who, in order to really understand a portrait, I want to know who painted it. Um, not a lot of <laughs> historians would agree with me on that, but that's my personal view. I, I need to know who painted something, and that for me is something that I find particularly interesting. So I think all of the, all of the um, research that has been done, both scientific and archival, um, into, into those areas and trying to f figure out who painted these portraits, um, trying to find any documentary um, evidence um, showing payment between artists and subjects, something that I find gripping personally. Why is it so important to know who painted a painting? Yeah, it's an in interesting question and some people would say that it isn't important, but personally I, I, like, to, I like to imagine these things. I mean, I, I, I like to imagine someone going into, their, into a studio, I like to imagine having sittings with an artist and then I like to imagine the artist painting it and all of the various elements that go into painting a portrait. Again, the, the, the materials and, and the process of painting and production, again, is something that I find fascinating. 
It's very intuitive that I mean yeah, I, I, know, I, 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 know. I like that because I'm I, I can appreciate what you're saying because yeah. for me when I go and see you know I'm into I'm mm. into buildings and, and and as well as objects and sometimes if I go and visit a place and there's just a few earthworks in the ground I don't know it, it, it invites my imagination to step in and you start to to me it brings color and life mm. and you start to create a whole story around a mm, painting mm. so I don't know I think it I think it would engage me more emotionally yeah to know who painted it what were they doing where were they doing it what, yeah. imagine what might have happened around that yeah and I think it's also to do with what you once you know the, the once you know who painted a portrait you can then try and establish where they may have received training, you know, and where their style comes from. You know, were they one of these artists who came from abroad to work in England? Were they native born? And I think knowing the identity of the artist um, helps understand the context mm. in which it's painted far more clearly. Yes, and that's that's the that's the expert's perspective, and that's <laughs> the but that's the perfect answer for that. Yeah, absolutely. So can we go and look at some of the portraits that you have here? And maybe you could tell me some stories about them and, yes. and, and, and educate me because I'd love to find out more about them. Absolutely. OK, let's Great. go. So Lawrence, you've brought me upstairs to the upper floor of the gallery and I'm looking at a portrait of a very fine chap. Can you tell me exactly what I'm looking at here? Yeah, so this is a portrait by the court painter, the Elizabethan court painter, George Gower. And this was painted in 1580 and it shows a young man, very broad-shouldered young man. Oh yes. <laughs> with his um, immaculate uh, ruff and he's shown um, in his 20th year of age. Now, a few things catch my eye immediately, mm. if I may. Well, a few things, and in no particular order. First of all, his eyes are very engaging and very searching. He's got deep brown eyes, mm. and he's... I'm trying to think of... He's almost got a bit of a playful look on his face to me, but he's really mm. inviting me in. And then I can see there's a... A, a centaur, is that a centaur? Mm -hmm. That's yep. holding a, a bow and arrow and he's firing it at the chap. So mm. now, and, and there's a Latin inscription which I'm afraid my Latin is very dusty and I can't translate it. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about some of those things that I've picked out. Yeah, so of course, so in, well, for, for starters, this artist, George Gout, was known for including this type of um, imagery on his portraits. And in the upper left corner, you, you have the centaur, and yeah, he's, he's, got, he's got a bow and arrow, and he's, it's, it's a reference, we think, probably, to his astrological sign. I mean, it's, it, it is the image of Sagittarius. And really what this plays into is this sort of Elizabethan um, obsession with sort of riddles, um, with sort of secrecy, with plays on words, so in effect, you're not supposed to really understand for certain what this is. This is all part of the, the visual um, <laughs> tricks, really, that we see from this period. So in the upper left corner, we have this centaur, which is supposed to represent the image of Chiron, who was, um, in Greek mythology, the tutor of Achilles, or the sort of the, the tutor of princes. So this is a comment, of course, on his intellect. And over on the left, we see a Latin inscription 
which roughly translates to no one respires who does not aspire. It is Inscription is also a play on words. Asprat is both a synonym for breathing and also a word used to mean aspire or desire. I mean, essentially what we are being told here is that those with no ambition cannot claim to have lived. It may not make a lot of sense, but that is the point behind it, because it's all part of this Elizabethan obsession with sort of secrecy, with riddles, with plays on words. And it's all part of the fun and games, really, um, that both <laughs> artists and subjects um, involve themselves with at this date. Given our previous mm. conversation, um, what do you think we know now about this portrait that we might not have known, you know, sort of, 30, 40 years ago, and, 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 and what, yeah, what could you tell us about that? Well, so a couple of things here. Firstly, the actual, the subject of this work was, until recently, um, thought to be someone entirely different. So up until we acquired this portrait, it was thought to depict uh, a man by the name of Thomas Arundel, but actually we now know it depicts his younger brother, William. And we know that just through something that a lot of people have had actually overlooked, which is this tiny, tiny little sort of half crescent oh, sign up there, which is a, a cadency mark. It's tiny, isn't it? It's tiny. And, and you see it again on top of oh, yes. this there. Silly, silly bist. And so what this indicates when shown on the, a family's coat of arms, indicate, that mark indicates that he was the, the second son. So Thomas was the eldest son. Ah. This indicates that the subject of this portrait was a second son, who was William. So just that tiny, tiny little mark has caused obviously considerable confusion in the past. So that's enabled us to really pinpoint for the first time who the subject of this portrait is. How fascinating. And what makes this even more interesting is that we found a copy of um, William Arundel's will. And in this will, he mentions portraits of his mother, he mentions a a painting of, um, of a saint, which was also in his collection. And he also references my two pictures. And so we're now wondering, of course, if this could have been one of the pictures that is referred to in his will. Now, of course, we'll never be able to know or prove that for definite, but these are the sort of lines of inquiries that have now opened up as a result of mm. the digitization of archival materials such as wills, um, which is a relatively recent phenomenon. Well, that's a perfect example that illustrates a couple of those points mm. brilliantly. So thank you for that. Is there any other portrait that we could perhaps talk about? Yeah, so uh, in fact, one of my favourite uh, portraits in this exhibition is one which I'll show you now, which was by an artist called um, the Master of the Countess of Warwick. So why don't I show you that one? I'd love to. Lead the way. <laughs>
Before we go any further, if you enjoy these podcasts, did you know that you can support my work by becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month? A link to find out more about this programme and the different levels of sponsorship available is included in the description associated with this podcast. And while I can't thank you in person, here's a big mwah to say a massive thank you from me. So now it's back to the show. So you've brought me to see quite a small portrait of a very, very delicate-looking Elizabethan lady. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about it. So this is by an artist whose name we don't know for certain yet, but is known within this field of study as the Master of the Countess of Warwick. And he's named after his most famous picture, which is the portrait of the Countess of Warwick, which is in a private collection. And this is actually the second time we've handled this picture. We handled it for the first time about seven years ago. And I remember when it first came in, just I was completely bowled over by it. And I mean, yes, it may not have the sort of the scale and the sophistication of some of these later Elizabethan portraits. This was painted in 1565, so it's relatively early. But everything about it, its scale, um, its condition, the fact that the subject's identity is given to us in the upper left corner, mm. just for me, really makes this a very uh, important work within our show. And actually one of my favourite Elizabethan panel portraits, I think, that we've, we've handled, certainly since I've been here. Wow, I mean, that surprises me in some mm. ways, as you say, because it's, compared to, I'm actually just going to say for the listeners, that mm. just behind my left shoulder <laughs> is a rather enormous and glorious picture of um, Robert Studley, Earl of Leicester, in his kind of orange-red breeches, silk breeches. <laughs> and that's the kind of portrait I'd be going, wow, that, that would really draw your attention. And compared to that, this is very demure mm. and quite understated. And just you, so up in the top left-hand corner, we've got what Maria Uxor Thomas yeah. Potter. Is that Thomas Potter? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we're being told that this is Maria um, Mary, the wife of Thomas Potter. And she's 23 years old. So tell, go into more detail and tell, perhaps you could describe the portrait, although I will be putting an image uh, of the portrait. In fact, both the portraits under discussion will be uh, included in a brief blog accompanying this podcast. So make sure that you look in the description associated with this podcast for the necessary links. But in the meantime, maybe, mm. Lawrence, you could describe it and go into a little bit more detail about why it fascinates you so. Sure. Well, I mean, your comparison to the portrait of Robert Dudley is an interesting one because, of course, it could not be more opposite. You've got Robert Dudley who's sort of standing with his sort of hand on his hip, looking very confident. In comparison to this portrait where our young subject is shown here with her hands clasped at her front in a very sort of pious, um, restrained type of pose. But the reason why I like this picture so much is, firstly, the condition is just so good. Now, the majority of Elizabethan portraits that we're used to seeing have suffered so badly at the hands of past conservators. I mean, let's not forget <coughs> these paintings were generally cleaned by the housekeepers in, in houses. You know, and I remember going to London Library and picking a book off the shelf, a book that was published in the, the late 19th century, and it was like a sort of housekeeper's guide to looking after art and antiques. 
And to clean a picture, it recommended licking your finger, dipping it into turpentine powder and gently rubbing the surface oh of the picture. Oh my goodness me. And right. So as a result, a lot of these pictures were just ruined. But this picture has survived in such good condition. And see, the main focal point of this picture really is of course the costume, because these portraits at this date, was, it was all about um, sort of conspicuous consumption and showing and reflecting your wealth through your fine clothing and your um, accessories. Now, her dress is made of, of this sort of wonderful dyed black um, silk, but obviously to paint that, artists used black paint, and black paint, the pigments of which were so soft that they were very, very easily damaged. You had if you imagine on a spectrum, you had lead white at one end, black on the other. Lead was white lead. White paint contained lots of lead, so it was very, very tough. Mm. Black pigments were very, very soft. So as a result, a lot of black costumes on Elizabethan portraits have been heavily abraded and in some instances are practically non-existent now. Whereas this has survived in pristine condition. And that's what I love about it. So you can see all of this very, very fine detailing on the costume. Yes, you can. And you know that compared with this 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 tiny this jewel at the centre here, and this rough which is sort of edged with actual sort of gold leaf. It, it shimmers. It's sort of precious. It's jewel-like, and that's why I really love this picture because I just think it's just such a such a precious thing. Um, so yes, if I if I could steal any any of the pictures from the gallery, but this would be, this be one. it. <laughs> You're a very yeah. modest man, but I can see the beauty of it. And mm. I must admit, the black work on her sleeves, obviously. Black work is very well known type of embroidery, but it's mm. all over her sleeves. It's very, very dramatic. I love it. Mm. So, and I'm going to ask you the same kind of question about, <coughs> you know, given the conversation and mm. the nature of the exhibition, what have we learned? Is there anything that we know has come to light about this painting and its origins, its provenance, who painted it over those decades? Well, see, the interesting thing about this, well, I mean, for starters, yes, when this painting was sold, at auction back in 1923, it was thought to be by an artist called Hans Ueth. Whereas now we're able to link it to this artist who we know was responsible for painting these portraits called the Master's Account of Work. But of course, the thing is, we still don't know their identity, and that's the thing that's still missing. You know, so this is a really good example of how we've, we've come so far, but there are still fundamental questions which remain to be answered. Um, so if, for me, uh, but again, I personally think this is all part of part of the fun with these portraits. You know, you can you can research these things. You, you can yes, you can subject these this to scientific analysis. We can look at the underdrawing of the way the hands are painted, the eyes are painted, but it will always come back to answering. Well, one of the big remaining questions will always be who painted it, and for that, we need to either find a signed or inscribed work or that sort of clincher, that sort of piece of that, that those few lines, mm. uh, that, that clinching piece of archival material that actually allows us to link a painting, a known painting, with that artist. I see. So, so you've come a long way, but the, potentially there's just still one bit of information that you need to really definitively ascribe who painted this. But how do you know um, it's from the master of the Countess of Warwick? How do you know that? Well, as a result of the, so the, the improved digital photography now, you're able to compare so many, you're able to study so many images of Elizabethan portraits, Tudor and Jacobean portraits, 
and you can then put these paintings into groups. And of course, after a while, certain stylistic, um, certain stylistic traits between artists' work begin to emerge. So when Roy Strong first grouped together works by this hand and gave this artist the, the, the moniker mm. Master of the Countess of Warwick, there was only a dozen works by that hand known, whereas now there's over 50, I believe, and more of them are coming out of the woodwork on a yearly basis. And of course, the more works that you can stylistically group together um, allows you to build a greater mm. understanding of that artist's stylistic traits. And so it it's sort of yeah. snowballs. Yes. And so the more works you have to, to, to go on, yeah. um, the more you can subject them to analysis, and then the more works you can yes. discover. More comparators you've more got, comparators, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and this work fits perfectly into his, his body of work. However, there is one thing that makes this painting quite unique within his oeuvre, and that is its scale. So, so it's, yeah, so this is the, the smallest panel by this artist that has so far come to light. And really that, more than anything, would have been down to the, the budget of mm. the person who commissioned it. I mean, the, the, we think of these paintings as um, sort of uh, priceless works of art, whereas, of course, they were more documents of sort of a likeness and um, they weren't viewed in the same way that we view them, essentially. Mm. And, yeah. But still, nevertheless pretty penny and therefore you know you, you did have to have a certain degree of wealth and this is certainly a, a you know pretty wealthy lady by the looks of things with the gold attached to her yeah oh yeah no no absolutely mm. absolutely and I think what scientific analysis as well has showed us with this painting and, and this makes quite a good comparison with the portrait by George Gow that we looked at a moment ago is we're able to study the way that these works were actually painted you know, from the panel upwards. Mm. So you had the panel, you then had the ground, the underdrawing. And what makes this artist particularly interesting is the way that they worked. And that is, you know, each layer of paint was applied, it then dried before the next layer was applied. So it was sort of built up in layers. And of course, mm. the last layer would have been the gold, which mm. you just see touched in on the top of around the rough and on the jewel in the mm. center. So it was built up over time in layers. Whereas if you now imagine a painting such as this picture here behind us, which is by Robert Peake, this was painted wet in wet. So you can see how the eyes have this sort of sense of realism. And this was painted in 1587, so some 20 years after the Master of the Countess of Warwick portrait. But you can see how that style, the styles are, are completely different. And that's when you said, you this is now the the start of what would become this very sort of English tradition of painting, which was um, characterised by um, sort of intense uh, realism as time went on, which was of course championed by later artists such as Hogarth and Reynolds. Lovely.
So, Lawrence, can you just, before we go further with this painting, perhaps you could just describe who we're looking at? <laughs> ah, so this is a portrait of a man called Richard Wingfield, and again, his identity has only recently been established um, in the process of researching this exhibition. And this is by an artist called Robert Peake, but this is painted relatively early in his career, in 1587. In fact, it's one of the earliest portraits attributed to his hand. But what strikes what I love about this portrait in particular is just the intense realism of the head. I mean, it's in such stark contrast to some of these earlier portraits which we've discussed, such mm. as the portrait of the Master of the Countess of Warwick. You have that, that wetness in the eye and that sort of three-dimensionality which is, mm. shows a step beyond um, what the artists of the previous generation were doing. Yes, I, could, I almost feel like I could run my fingers through <laughs> his hair. He's got this lovely tousled hair. I just had a question. How do these leaps and innovations happen in art? I know nothing about that. How did it go from the portrait we've just been talking about, the lady painted by the mm. Master of the Countess of Warwick, to this? How does that happen? Do we know? Well, I mean, I suppose what, what's worth, it's worth remembering that the demand for portrait at this date was had increased massively during the Elizabethan age. I mean, this was a period of great prosperity. And obviously, as the demand for portraiture increased, you had other artists coming over from the continent, as well as those working in England, <coughs> all of whom were sharing ideas and um, innovations. Holbein was really realistic. He was obviously a lot earlier in the mm. 16th century. So is, is his realism different to this realism? Or, you know, how can you compare, mm. contrast? <laughs> yeah, well, I think what separates this painting and th this sort of moment in British art is, is that sort of, they were, they were seeking a, a heightened realism. And of course, I mean, Holbein, I mean, there's no doubt in the fact that he, he was a sort of master of, of perspective. But this portrait, in the head is more, it's more believable. Um, it's more, this is more of a sort of, it has more movement, more, I would say, arguably personality um, than some Holbein's portraits, which are very precise in their detail. But I think this is movement. Ah, I see, right, ah, I see. So, so it, it is an evolution, because I think some people listening, and I, my, th my first reaction was, oh, I was sure Holbein was into realism, and I think mm. a lot of people might be confused by that, but to understand, actually, there is, a, there is an evolution, even in the painting of realism. <laughs> yeah, I think it's realism through a painterly technique and through the application of um, paint in a way that um, isn't, perhaps, what you would define as sort of fine and precise. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to zoom in on those eyes and you were to see the white highlights in and around the eyes themselves, you wouldn't define that as sort of fine, not in the same way that Holbein was working. But it nevertheless um, said by creating sort of movement, it, 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 I suppose, creates more drama, I think. Mm -hmm. OK. And is there anything else we need to know, um, again, about how the story of this painting has evolved over time? Mm. Yeah, so uh, until recently, um, until literally six months ago, it was thought to be a portrait of um, Humphrey Wingfield. In fact, it was reproduced as such in various past um, publications on Tudor art and on publications on Peak. But again, through analysis of the coat of arms that we see in the upper left corner, we now know that it is, in fact, um, a portrait of another member of the family, Richard Wingfield. 
we, we can see here in the cadency mark in the upper left corner of the family's coat of arms, you can see the tiny little wings here for the Wingfield family yes. and the star or the or mullet, as, to use its proper term. And that indicates that he was the third son. Now, crucially, we also have here a coat of arms of the Hardwick family. And you can see how it's sort of floating. It's not incorporated yes. into the child. It's just sort of placed on top. And that is the coat of arms of this subject's wife who was a member of the Hardwick family. So we were able, through those two elements, to prove conclusively that we are looking at a portrait of Richard <coughs> and not Humphrey. That's fantastic, because it is a rather splendid coat of arms. I was going to ask you about that, so it was interesting <laughs> that when you actually told me the story about that, but I'm going to be looking out for those marks. So that's a star. The other one was mm. a slightly different mark. So, so do they vary then? Yeah, they do. So each son of um, uh, of a family who had their, their own arms used different uh, marks, cadency marks, or cadency marks, um, in the upper corners of their arms. So yes, the star would be the third son, the crescent it was earlier would be the second son, and so on and so forth. And there's a huge variation of these marks. Hmm. But they're very, very easy to overlook. But in instances such as this, they can prove crucial when trying to understand who you're looking at in yeah. a portrait. Well, that's fascinating. That's completely new to me, so thank you so much for that. OK, Lawrence, we are actually still in the same room, but I did mention this rather stunning portrait that I can't take my eyes off. It's of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Now, I've seen this before many times. Uh, it's all over the internet, but I have to say, seeing it in person is really rather remarkable. The colours, for a start, are incredible and uh, if you'll indulge me because I really wanted to share this with the listeners the detail on the face when you see the painting I've completely missed when I've seen pictures of it so you can see the vein in his temple can't you mm -hmm. and then he's got a hairy mole on his <laughs> right cheek I had no idea, but there you go. That obviously must have been a very distinctive feature of the man. But anyway, enough of that. That's just my, just my sort of the initial impressions, and I just find it an amazing painting to look at. But go back to our story, mm. which we're, we're looking at the paintings you have here in the exhibition and how, you, how you've learnt so much. What, what's the story with this? What are you grappling with with this painting? Because obviously the sitter is in no doubt whatsoever. No, exactly. So I think one of the main issues surrounding these portraits of Robert Dudley is who painted them. And recently, um, scholars have tried to um, reaffirm the attribution for this particular portrait type. I mean, Robert Dudley was one of the greatest and most prolific um, patrons of the Elizabethan age. I mean, he sat for more portraits than probably the Queen herself. <laughs> But there's only a very small number of these portrait types known, as in that follow this composition and on this scale. And the current thinking, which is perfectly logical, is that the artist responsible for these was an artist called Stephen van der Moulin. And Stephen van der Moulin was an artist who um, came over from the continent. He worked within the Elizabethan court. Um, he travelled to Sweden where he painted the King of Sweden, a portrait of which was then shown to Elizabeth. And so he was very much part of that court circle. And through sort of, well, sort of painstaking um, archival research and through um, technical analysis of other surviving examples um, by van der Moulin, 
it's now possible to say with near enough certainty, I think, that this is a product of van der Moulen's workshop. Um, so he's a very fascinating artist. There's lots more to be found um, about uh, van der Moulen as a painter, but there's portraits by him or thought to be by him in collections in America, you know, in the Yale Centre for British Art. Um, in, there's one in an Australian museum, a, a beautiful uh, portrait showing just the head mm -hmm. of this type. Mm -hmm. um, so again, this is again an, another sort of area that's currently going through um, reappraisal and sort of constantly um, being reassessed. But, but yeah. So you were just mentioning the catalogue associated with this that you're putting together is, is quite chunky. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, especially for this picture. Yeah, there's been some, um, some amazing research done by a scholar called um, Edward Town, who's um, at, from the Yale Centre for British Art. And he's really taken on board um, van der Moulen. He's really trying to, to, to nail him down as an artist and figure out where he was, um, where he was living, where he was working, uh, trying to figure out what portraits he painted. Um, so we, he, he contributed largely to that catalogue entry, but it's well worth the read. Mm. So, so what percentage certainty do we have that it's by van der Moulen? Well, of course, what's very difficult at this date is that you had artists who were working, but of course you also had their studios and their workshops who were assisting them. Uh, now, of course, we may look at these things and try and figure out which bit was the artist, which bit was the workshop assistants, but... Um, we, we feel pretty confident that this is certainly from his workshop, mm. but of course there's only so far scientific analysis can really take you at this stage, mm. so um, we will be describing it as, as a work from his workshop. Well, I mean, it's a great painting to finish on. Thank you so much for showing these amazing paintings. So the exhibition is running, isn't it, here at the gallery? You mentioned the dates. Perhaps you could remind people when it's... Yeah, so... Love's Labour's Found, the exhibition runs from the 21st of April until the 28th of May this year. Well, that's lovely. Thank you so much for taking us through this story of how things are evolving, because I think so that unless you are in the world of uh, art, we probably don't realise just how much things have changed over the last few decades. So thank you very much for sharing that with us, Lawrence. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Psst. Before we finish the show... Remember, you can support my work via my Patreon programme, where various levels of sponsorship are available, starting at just $1 a month. Check out all the details of how to become a patron in the link included with this podcast. Oh, and don't forget, you can be part of my closed Facebook group, where fellow time travellers like you hang out with me and each other to share some of our favourite things about visiting the UK. From great Tudor places to visit to the best way to take your cream tea in an afternoon. From the latest travel news to the traditional Sunday roast. So don't miss out and you can apply to join by clicking on the link in the description. So now it's back to close the show. Well, I hope you enjoyed that stroll around the wonderful Philip Mole Gallery in London with our host today, Lawrence Hendra. And it's a huge thank you from me to Lawrence and the staff at the gallery for making us so welcome and for opening my eyes again <laughs> to what more we can understand and see and appreciate when we are looking at some of these amazing pieces of Tudor art. 
Well, in fact, I will be back sooner than normal because next week we have an extra special episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. I will be interviewing two lovely ladies, Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark, about their up-and-coming book, King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship. So if you want to find out all about how Henry masterfully made use of art as propaganda, then make sure you tune in and listen to that conversation. But until then, I want to wish you a very happy rest of the week, wherever you are in the world, and I will look forward to seeing you again in the next podcast, which will go live next weekend. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling.